0: section four of how to tell a story and other essays by mark twain this librivox recording is in the public domain how to tell a story and other essays by mark twain chapter two part three in defense of harriet shelley it is eighteen fourteen it is the sixteenth of march shelley has written his letter he has been in the boynville paradise a month his deserted wife is in her husbandless home. Mischief had been wrought. It is the biographer who concedes this. We greatly need some light on Harriet's side of the case now. We need to know how she enjoyed the month. But there is no way to inform ourselves. There seems to be a strange absence of documents and letters and diaries on that side. Shelley kept a diary, the approaching Mary Godwin kept a diary, her father kept one, her half-sister by marriage, adoption, and the dispensation of God kept one, and the entire tribe and all its friends wrote and received letters, and the letters were kept, and are producible when this biography needs them. But there are only three or four scraps of harriet's writing and no diary harriet wrote plenty of letters to her husband nobody knows where they are i suppose she wrote plenty of letters to other people apparently they have disappeared too peacock says she wrote good letters but apparently interested people had sagacity enough to mislay them in time after all her industry she went down into her grave and lies silent there silent when she has so much need to speak we can only wonder at this mystery not account for it no there is no way of finding out what harriet's state of feeling was during the month that shelley was disporting himself in the bracknell paradise we have to fall back upon conjecture as our fabulist does when he has nothing more substantial to work with then we easily conjecture that as the days dragged by harriet's heart grew heavier and heavier under its two burdens shame and resentment, the shame of being pointed at and gossiped about as a deserted wife, and resentment against the woman who had beguiled her husband from her, and now kept him in a disreputable captivity. Deserted wives, deserted whether for cause or without cause, find small charity among the virtuous and the discreet. We conjecture that one after another the neighbors ceased to call, that one after another they got to being engaged when Harriet called, that finally they one after another cut her dead on the street, that after that she stayed in the house daytimes and brooded over her sorrows and nighttimes did the same there being nothing else to do with the heavy hours and the silence and solitude and the dreary intervals which sleep should have charitably bridged but didn't yes mischief had been wrought the biographer arrives at this conclusion and it is a most just one then just as you begin to half hope he is going to discover the cause of it and launch hot bolts of wrath at the guilty manufacturers of it you have to turn away disappointed you are disappointed and you sigh this is what he says the italics are mine however the mischief may have been wrought and at this day no one can wish to heap blame on any buried head so it is poor harriet after all stern justice must take its course justice tempered with delicacy justice tempered with compassion justice that pities a forlorn dead girl and refuses to strike her except in the back will not be ignoble and say the harsh thing but only insinuate it stern justice knows about the carriage and the wet nurse and the bonnet shop and the other dark things that caused this sad mischief and may not must not blink them so it delivers judgment where judgment belongs but softens the blow by not seeming to deliver judgment at all to resume the italics are mine however the mischief may have been wrought and at this day no one can wish to heap blame on any buried head it is certain that some cause or causes of deep division between Shelley and his wife were in operation during the early part of the year 1814. This shows penetration. No deduction could be more accurate than this. There were indeed some causes of deep division. But next comes Another disappointing sentence. To guess at the precise nature of these causes, in the absence of definite statement, were useless. Why, he has already been guessing at them for several pages, and we have been trying to outguess him, and now, all of a sudden, he is tired of it and won't play any more. It is not quite fair to us. However, he will get over this by and by when Shelley commits his next indiscretion and has to be guessed out of it at Harriet's expense. We may rest content with Shelley's own words. In a chancery paper drawn up by him three years later, they were these. Delicacy forbids me to say more than that we were disunited by incurable dissensions. As for me, I do not quite see why we should rest content with anything of the sort. It is not a very definite statement. It does not necessarily mean anything more than that He did not wish to go into the tedious details of those family quarrels. Delicacy could quite properly excuse him from saying, I was in love with Cornelia all that time. My wife kept crying and worrying about it and upbraiding me and begging me to cut myself free from a connection which was wronging her and disgracing us both and i being stung by these reproaches retorted with fierce and bitter speeches for it is my nature to do that when i am stirred especially if the target of them is a person whom i had greatly loved and respected before as witness my various attitudes towards Miss Hitchener, the Gisborns, Harriet's sister, and others. And finally, I did not improve this state of things when I deserted my wife and spent a whole month with the woman who had infatuated me. No, he could not go into those details and we excuse him but nevertheless we do not rest content with this bland proposition to puff away that whole long disreputable episode with a single meaningless remark of shelley's we do admit that it is certain that some cause or causes of deep division were in operation. We would admit it just the same if the grammar of the statement were as straight as a string, for we drift into pretty indifferent grammar ourselves when we are absorbed in historical work, but we have to decline to admit that we cannot guess those cause or causes. But guessing is not really necessary there is evidence attainable evidence from the batch discredited by the biographer and set out at the back door in his appendix basket and yet a court of law would think twice before throwing it out whereas it would be a hardy person who would venture to offer in such a place a good part of the material which is placed before the readers of this book as evidence, and so treated by this daring biographer, among some letters in the appendix basket from Mrs. Godwin, detailing the Godwinian share in the Shelleyan events of 1814, she tells how Harriet Shelley came to her and her husband agitated and weeping, to implore them forbid Shelley the house, and prevent his seeing Mary Godwin. She related that last November he had fallen in love with Mrs. Turner, and paid her such marked attentions Mr. Turner, the husband, had carried off his wife to Devonshire. The biographer finds a technical fault in this. The Shelleys were in Edinburgh in November what of that the woman is recalling a conversation which is more than two months old besides she was probably more intent upon the central and important fact of it than upon its unimportant date harriet's quoted statement has some sense in it for that reason if for no other it ought to have been put in the body of the book Still, that would not have answered. Even the biographer's enemy could not be cruel enough to ask him to let this real grievance, this compact and substantial and picturesque figure, this raw head and bloody bones, come striding in there among those pale shams, those rickety specters labeled wet-nurse, bonnet shop and so on no the father of all malice could not ask the biographer to expose his pathetic goblins to a competition like that the fabulist finds fault with the statement because it has a technical error in it and he does this at the moment that he is furnishing us an error himself and of a graver sort he says if turner carried off his wife to devonshire he brought her back and shelley was staying with her and her mother on terms of cordial intimacy in march eighteen fourteen we accept the cordial intimacy it was the very thing harriet was complaining of but there is nothing to show that it was turner who brought his wife back the statement is thrown in as if it were not only true but was proof that turner was not uneasy turner's movements are proof of nothing nothing but a statement from turner's mouth would have any value here and he made none six days after writing his letter shelley and his wife were together again for a moment to get remarried according to the rites of the english church within 3 weeks the new husband and wife were apart again and the former was back in his odorous paradise this time it is the wife who does the deserting she finds cornelia too strong for her probably at any rate She goes away with her baby and sister, and we have a playful fling at her from good Mrs. Boyneville, the mysterious Spinner Maimouna, she whose face was as a damsel's face, and yet her hair was gray. She of whom the biographer has said, Shelley was indeed caught in an almost invisible thread spun around him but unconsciously by this subtle and benignant enchantress the subtle and benignant enchantress writes to hogg april eighteenth shelley is again a widower his beauteous half went to town on thursday then shelley writes a poem a chant of grief over the hard fate which obliges him now to leave his paradise and take up with his wife again. It seems to intimate that the paradise is cooling toward him, that he is warned off by acclamation, that he must not even venture to tempt with one last tear his friend Cornelia's ungentle mood for her eye is glazed and cold and dares not entreat her lover to stay exhibit e pause not the time is past every voice cries away tempt not with one last tear thy friend's ungentle mood Thy lover's eye, so glazed and cold, dares not entreat thy stay. Duty and dereliction guide thee back to solitude. Back to the solitude of his now empty home, that is. Away, away, to thy sad and silent home. Pour bitter tears on its desolated hearth he will have rest in the grave by and by until that time comes the charms of bracknell will remain in his memory along with mrs boynville's voice and cornelia turner's smile thou in the grave shalt rest yet till the phantoms flee which that house and hearth and garden made dear to thee erewhile, thy remembrance and repentance and deep musings are not free from the music of two voices and the light of one sweet smile." We cannot wonder that Harriet could not stand it. Any of us would have left. We would not even stay with a cat that was in this condition even the boynevilles could not endure it and so as we have seen they gave this one notice early in may shelley was in london he did not yet despair of reconciliation with harriet nor had he ceased to love her shelley's poems are a good deal of trouble to his biographer they are constantly inserted as evidence, and they make much confusion. As soon as one of them has proved one thing, another one follows and proves quite a different thing. The poem just quoted shows that he was in love with Cornelia, but a month later he is in love with Harriet again. And There is a poem to prove it in this piteous appeal shelley declares that he has now no grief but one the grief of having known and lost his wife's love exhibit f thy look of love has power to calm the stormiest passion of my soul but without doubt She had been reserving her looks of love a good part of the time for ten months now, ever since he began to lavish his own on Cornelia Turner at the end of the previous July. He does really seem to have already forgotten Cornelia's merits in one brief month, for he eulogizes Harriet in a way which rules all competition out. Thou only virtuous, gentle, kind, amid a world of hate." He complains of her hardness, and begs her to make the concession of a slight endurance of his waywardness, perhaps, for the sake of a fellow-being's lasting weal but the main force of his appeal is in his closing stanza and is strongly worded o trust for once no erring guide bid the remorseless feeling flee tis malice tis revenge tis pride tis anything but thee o deign a nobler pride to prove and pity if thou canst not love this is in may apparently towards the end of it harriet and shelley were corresponding all the time harriet got the poem a copy exists in her own handwriting she being the only gentle and kind person amid a world of hate according to shelley's own testimony in the poem we are permitted to think that the daily letters would presently have melted that kind and gentle heart and brought about the reconciliation if there had been time. But there wasn't, for in a very few days, in fact, before the 8th of June, Shelley was in love with another woman, and so perhaps while harriet was walking the floor nights trying to get her poem by heart her husband was doing a fresh one for the other girl mary wollstonecraft godwin with sentiments like these in it exhibit g to spend years thus and be rewarded as thou sweet love requited me when none were near thy lips did meet mine tremblingly gentle and good and mild thou art nor can i live if thou appear aught but thyself and so on before the close of june it was known and felt by mary and shelley that each was inexpressibly dear to the other. Yes, Shelley had found this child of sixteen to his liking, and had wooed and won her in the graveyard. But that is nothing. It was better than wooing her in her nursery, at any rate, where it might have disturbed the other children. However, she was a child in years only. From the day that she set her masculine grip on Shelley, he was to frisk no more. If she had occupied the only kind and gentle Harriet's place in March, it would have been a thrilling spectacle to see her invade the Boyneville Rookery and read the Riot Act. That holiday of Shelley's would have been of short duration and Cornelia's hair would have been as gray as her mother's when the services were over. Hogg went to the Godwin residence in Skinner Street with Shelley on the 8th of June. They passed through Godwin's little debt factory of a bookshop and went upstairs hunting for the proprietor. Nobody there. Shelley strode about the room impatiently, making its crazy floor quake under him. Then a door was partially and softly opened. A thrilling voice called, "Shelley!" A thrilling voice answered, ''Mary!'' And he darted out of the room like an arrow from the bow of the far-shooting king a very young female fair and fair-haired pale indeed and with a piercing look wearing a frock of tartan an unusual dress in london at that time had called him out of the room this is mary godwin as described by hogg the thrill of the voices shows that the love of shelley and mary was already upward of a fortnight old therefore it had been born within the month of may born while harriet was still trying to get her poem by heart we think i must not be asked how i know so much about that thrill it is my secret the biographer and i have private ways of finding out things when it is necessary to find them out and the customary methods fail. Shelley left London that day and was gone ten days. The biographer conjectures that he spent this interval with Harriet in Bath. It would be just like him. To the end of his days he liked to be in love with two women at once. He was more in love with Miss Hitchener when he married Harriet than he was with Harriet, and told the lady so with simple and unostentatious candor. He was more in love with Cornelia than he was with Harriet in the end of 1813 and the beginning of 1814, yet he supplied both of them with love-poems of an equal temperature meantime he loved mary and harriet in june and while getting ready to run off with the one it is conjectured that he put in his odd time trying to get reconciled to the other by and by while still in love with mary He will make love to her half-sister by marriage, adoption, and the visitation of God through the medium of clandestine letters, and she will answer with letters that are for no eye but his own. When Shelley encountered Mary Godwin, he was looking around for another paradise. He had tastes of his own and there were features about the godwin establishment that strongly recommended it godwin was an advanced thinker and an able writer one of his romances is still read but his philosophical works once so esteemed are out of vogue now their authority was already declining when Shelley made his acquaintance. That is, it was declining with the public, but not with Shelley. They had been his moral and political Bible, and they were that yet. Shelley, the infidel, would himself have claimed to be less a work of God than a work of Godwin. Godwin's philosophies, had formed his mind and interwoven themselves into it and become a part of its texture. He regarded himself as Godwin's spiritual son. Godwin was not without self-appreciation. Indeed, it may be conjectured that from his point of view the last syllable of his name was surplusage. He lived serene in his lofty world of philosophy, far above the mean interests that absorbed smaller men, and only came down to the ground at intervals to pass the hat for alms to pay his debts with, and insult the man that relieved him. Several of his principles were out of the ordinary. For example, he was opposed to marriage. He was not aware that his preachings from this text were but theory and wind. He supposed he was in earnest in imploring people to live together without marrying until Shelley furnished him a working model of his scheme and a practical example to analyze by applying the principle in his own family. THE MATTER TOOK A DIFFERENT AND SURPRISING ASPECT THEN. THE LATE MATTHEW ARNOLD SAID THAT THE MAIN DEFECT IN Shelley's MAKE-UP WAS THAT HE WAS DESTITUTE OF THE SENSE OF HUMOR. THIS EPISODE MUST HAVE ESCAPED MR. ARNOLD'S ATTENTION. BUT WE HAVE SAID ENOUGH ABOUT THE HEAD OF THE NEW PARADISE. Mrs. Godwin is described as being in several ways a terror, and even when her soul was in repose, she wore green spectacles, but I suspect that her main unattractiveness was born of the fact that she wrote the letters that are out in the appendix basket in the back yard letters which are an outrage and wholly untrustworthy for they say some kind things about poor harriet and tell some disagreeable truths about her husband and these things make the fabulist grit his teeth a good deal next we have fanny godwin a godwin by courtesy only she was mrs godwin's natural daughter by a former friend. She was a sweet and winning girl, but she presently wearied of the Godwin paradise and poisoned herself. Last in the list is Jane, or Clare, as she preferred to call herself, Claremont, daughter of Mrs. Godwin by a former marriage. She was very young and pretty and accommodating and always ready to do what she could to make things pleasant after shelley ran off with her part sister mary she became the guest of the pair and contributed a natural child to their nursery allegra lord byron was the father we have named the several members and advantages of the new paradise in skinner street with its crazy bookshop underneath, Shelley was all right now. This was a better place than the other, more variety anyway, and more different kinds of fragrance. One could turn out poetry here without any trouble at all. The way the new love match came about was this. Shelley told Mary all his aggravations, and sorrows, and griefs, and about the wet-nurse, and the bonnet-shop, and the surgeon, and the carriage, and the sister-in-law that blocked the London game, and about Cornelia and her mama, and how they had turned him out of the house after making so much of him and how he had deserted Harriet, and then Harriet had deserted him, and how the reconciliation was working along, and Harriet getting her poem by heart. And still he was not happy, and Mary pitied him, for she had had trouble herself. But I am not satisfied with this. It reads too much like statistics it lacks smoothness and grace and is too earthy and businesslike it has the sordid look of a trades union procession out on strike that is not the right form for it the book does it better we will fall back on the book and have a cake walk It was easy to divine that some restless grief possessed him. Mary herself was not unlearned in the lore of pain. His generous zeal in her father's behalf, his spiritual sonship to Godwin, his reverence for her mother's memory, were guarantees with Mary of his excellence what she was after was guarantees of his excellence that he stood ready to desert his wife and child was one of them apparently the new friends could not lack subjects of discourse and underneath their words about mary's mother and political justice and rights of woman were two young hearts, each feeling towards the other, each, perhaps unaware, trembling in the direction of the other. The desire to assuage the suffering of one whose happiness has grown precious to us may become a hunger of the spirit as keen as any other, and this hunger now possessed Mary's heart. When her eyes rested unseen on Shelley, it was with a look full of the ardor of a soothing pity. Yes, that is better and has more composure. That is just the way it happened. He told her about the wet nurse. She told him about political justice. He told her about the deadly sister-in-law. She told him about her mother. He told her about the bonnet-shop. She murmured back about the rights of woman. Then he assuaged her, then she assuaged him, then he assuaged her some more, next she assuaged him some more. Then they both assuaged one another simultaneously, and so they went on by the hour assuaging and assuaging and assuaging until at last what was the result they were in love it will happen so every time he had married a woman who as he now persuaded himself had never truly loved him who loved only his fortune and his rank and who proved her selfishness by deserting him in his misery. I think that that is not quite fair to Harriet. We have no certainty that she knew Cornelia had turned him out of the house. He went back to Cornelia, and Harriet may have supposed that he was as happy with her as ever. Still it was judicious to begin to lay on the whitewash, for Shelley is going to need many a coat of it now, and the sooner the reader becomes used to the intrusion of the brush, the sooner he will get reconciled to it and stop fretting about it. After Shelley's, conjectured, visit to Harriet at Bath, 8th of June to 18th, it seems to have been arranged that shelley should henceforth join the skinner street household each day at dinner nothing could be handier than this things will swim along now although now shelley was coming to believe that his wedded union with harriet was a thing of the past he had not ceased to regard her with affectionate consideration he wrote to her frequently and kept her informed of his whereabouts we must not get impatient over these curious inharmoniousnesses and irreconcilabilities in shelley's character you can see by the biographer's attitude toward them that there is nothing objectionable about them shelley was doing his best to make two adoring young creatures happy. He was regarding the one with affectionate consideration by mail, and he was assuaging the other one at home. Unhappy Harriet, residing at Bath, had perhaps never desired that the breach between herself and her husband should be irreparable and complete. I find no fault with that sentence, except that the perhaps is not strictly warranted. It should have been left out. In support, or shall we say extenuation, of this opinion I submit that there is not sufficient evidence to warrant the uncertainty which it implies. The only evidence offered that Harriet was hard and proud and standing out against a reconciliation, is a poem, the poem in which Shelley beseeches her to bid the remorseless feeling flee, and pity if she cannot love. We have just that as evidence, and out of its meager materials the biographer builds a cob house of conjectures as big as the coliseum conjectures which convince him the prosecuting attorney but ought to fall far short of convincing any fair-minded jury shelley's love poems may be very good evidence but we know well that they are good for this day and train only we are able to believe that they spoke the truth for that one day but we know by experience that they could not be depended on to speak it the next the very supplication for a re-warming of harriet's chilled love was followed so suddenly by the poet's plunge into an adoring passion for mary godwin that if it had been a check it would have lost its value before a lazy person could have gotten to the bank with it hardness stubbornness pride vindictiveness these may sometimes reside in a young wife and mother of nineteen but they are not charged against harriet shelley outside of that poem and one has no right to insert them into her character on such shadowy evidence as that. Peacock knew Harriet well, and she has a flexible and persuadable look, as painted by him. Her manners were good, and her whole aspect and demeanor such manifest emanations of pure and truthful nature that to be once in her company was to know her thoroughly. She was fond of her husband, and accommodated herself in every way to his tastes. If they mixed in society, she adored it. If they lived in retirement, she was satisfied if they traveled she enjoyed the change of scene perhaps she had never desired that the breach should be irreparable and complete the truth is we do not even know that there was any breach at all at this time we know that the husband and wife went before the altar and took a new oath on the 24th of March, to love and cherish each other until death, and this may be regarded as a sort of reconciliation itself, and a wiping out of the old grudges. Then Harriet went away, and the sister-in-law removed herself from her society. That was in April. Shelley wrote his appeal in may but the corresponding went right along afterwards we have a right to doubt that the subject of it was a reconciliation or that harriet had any suspicion that she needed to be reconciled and that her husband was trying to persuade her to it as the biographer has sought to make us believe with his colosseum of conjectures built out of a waste-basket of poetry, for we have evidence now, not poetry and conjecture. When Shelley had been dining daily in the Skinner Street Paradise fifteen days and continuing the love-match, which was already a fortnight old, Twenty-five days earlier, he forgot to write Harriet. Forgot it the next day and the next. During four days, Harriet got no letter from him. Then her fright and anxiety rose to expression heat, and she wrote a letter to Shelley's publisher, which seems to reveal to us that Shelley's letters to her had been the customary affectionate letters of husband to wife and had carried no appeals for reconciliation and had not needed to bath postmark july 7th 1814 my dear sir you will greatly oblige me by giving the enclosed to mr shelley I would not trouble you, but it is now four days since I have heard from him, which to me is an age. Will you write by return of post, and tell me what has become of him? As I always fancy something dreadful has happened if I do not hear from him. If you tell me that he is well, I shall not come to London. But if I do not hear from you or him, I shall certainly come, as I cannot endure this dreadful state of suspense. You are his friend, and you can feel for me. I remain yours truly, H.S. Even without Peacock's testimony that Her whole aspect and demeanor were manifest emanations of a pure and truthful nature. We should hold this to be a truthful letter, a sincere letter, a loving letter. It bears those marks. I think it is also the letter of a person accustomed to receiving letters from her husband frequently, and that they have been of a welcome and satisfactory sort, too, this long time back, ever since the solemn remarriage and reconciliation at the altar, most likely. The biographer follows Harriet's letter with a conjecture. He conjectures that she would now gladly have retraced her steps, which means that it is proven that she had steps to retrace proven by the poem. Well, if the poem is better evidence than the letter, we must let it stand at that. Then the biographer attacks Harriet Shelley's honor by authority of random and unverified gossip scavengered from a group of people whose very names make a person shudder mary godwin mistress to shelley her part sister discarded mistress of lord byron godwin the philosophical tramp who gathers his share of it from a shadow that is to say from a person whom he shirks out of naming yet the biographer dignifies this sorry rubbish with the name of evidence Nothing remotely resembling a distinct charge from a named person professing to know is offered among this precious evidence. 1. Shelley believed so-and-so. 2. Byron's discarded mistress says that Shelley told Mary Godwin so-and-so, and and Mary told her. 3 shelley said so and so and later admitted over and over again that he had been in error for the unspeakable godwin wrote to mr baxter that he knew so and so from unquestionable authority name not furnished How any man in his right mind could bring himself to defile the grave of a shamefully abused and defenseless girl with these baseless fabrications, this manufactured filth, is inconceivable. How any man, in his right mind, or out of it, could sit down and coldly try to persuade anybody to believe it or listen patiently to it or indeed do anything but scoff at it and deride it is astonishing the charge insinuated by these odious slanders is one of the most difficult of all offences to prove it is also one which no man has a right to mention even in a whisper about any woman living or dead unless he knows it to be true and not even then unless he can also prove it to be true there is no justification for the abomination of putting this stuff in the book against harriet shelley's good name There is not one scrap of tarnishing evidence, not even a scrap of evil gossip that comes from a source that entitles it to a hearing. On the credit side of the account, we have strong opinions from the people who knew her best. Peacock says, I feel it due to the memory of Harriet to state my most decided conviction that her conduct as a wife was as pure as true as absolutely faultless as that of any who for such conduct are held most in honor thornton hunt who had picked and published slight flaws in harriet's character says as regards this alleged large one there is not a trace of evidence or a whisper of scandal against her before her voluntary departure from shelley trelawney says i was assured by the evidence of the few friends who knew both shelley and his wife hookham Hogg, peacock and one of the godwins that harriet was perfectly innocent of all offence what excuse was there for raking up a parcel of foul rumors from malicious and discredited sources and flinging them at this dead girl's head her very defenselessness should have been her protection the fact that all letters to her or about her with almost every scrap of her own writing had been diligently mislaid, leaving her case destitute of a voice, while every pen-stroke which could help her husband's side had been as diligently preserved, should have excused her from being brought to trial. Her witnesses have all disappeared, yet we see her summoned in her grave clothes, to plead for the life of her character, without the help of an advocate, before a disqualified judge and a packed jury. Harriet Shelley wrote her distressed letter on the 7th of July. On the 28th, her husband ran away with Mary Godwin and her part-sister, Claire, to the continent. He deserted his wife when her confinement was approaching. She bore him a child at the end of November. His mistress bore him another one, something over two months later. The truants were back in London before either of these events occurred. On one occasion, presently, Shelley was so pressed for money to support his mistress with that he went to his wife and got some money of his that was in her hands, twenty pounds. Yet the mistress was not moved to gratitude, for later, when the wife was troubled to meet her engagements, the mistress makes this entry in her diary. Harriet sends her creditors here. Nasty woman! Now we shall have to change our lodgings. The deserted wife bore the bitterness and obloquy of her situation two years and a quarter. Then she gave up and drowned herself. A month afterwards, the body was found in the water. Three weeks later, Shelley married his mistress. I must here be allowed to italicize a remark of the biographers concerning Harriet Shelley that no act of shelley's during the two years which immediately preceded her death tended to cause the rash act which brought her life to its close seems certain yet her husband had deserted her and her children and was living with a concubine all that time why should a person attempt to write biography when the simplest facts have no meaning to him. This book is littered with as crass stupidities as that one, deductions by the page, which bear no discoverable kinship to their premises. The biographer throws off that extraordinary remark without any perceptible disturbance to his serenity, for he follows it, with a sentimental justification of Shelley's conduct, which has not a pang of conscience in it, but is silky and smooth and undulating and pious, a cakewalk with all the colored brethren at their best. There may be people who can read that page and keep their temper, but it is doubtful Shelley's life has the one indelible blot upon it, but is otherwise worshipfully noble and beautiful. It even stands out indestructibly gracious and lovely from the ruck of these disastrous pages, in spite of the fact that they expose and establish his responsibility for his forsaken wife's pitiful fate a responsibility which he himself tacitly admits in a letter to Eliza Westbrook, wherein he refers to his taking up with Mary Godwin as an act which Eliza might excusably regard as the cause of her sister's ruin. End of part three of In Defense of Harriet Shelley by Mark Twain. Read by John Greenman.